Last week, we published some new research which showed that two-thirds of new cancer drugs approved by the European Medicines Agency, that's the drug regulator for Europe, didn't have any evidence of improved life expectancy or quality of life at that point. Furthermore, when following up those drugs, the researchers found that six years afterwards, more than half still lacked that evidence. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. And last week, I interviewed Hussein Neji from the London School of Economics and one of the authors of that paper. That interview is still available on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts from. Earlier this week, I talked to Vinay Prasad, who's a haematologist, oncologist and assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Sciences University, who wrote an editorial to accompany that research. We talked about how we've got to this position, what the FDA does, and what does it mean for oncologists actually prescribing these drugs. Vinay, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So the research that we've published last week um, is based on EMA approvals and showed that two-thirds of new cancer drug approvals um, were not done on the basis of quality of evidence of quality of life or life expectancy benefit. Um, no, that's EMA, that's the European regulator. They, they approve drugs for Europe. Um, you're in the States, um, you have the FDA. Do they do anything more? Do they, they require more data from, from drug companies? Yeah, so I would, I, I would say... Um you know, the paper by, by Davis and colleagues uh, is really an excellent paper looking not only at the, the, the basis of approval when the drugs came to market, but also looking nearly six years on the market to see what additional information was provided about these drugs. And I would say their results, which are very sobering, actually go hand in hand with results from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Um, with my colleague, Chul Kim, uh, who's a researcher at the time at the National Cancer Institute, we looked at the FDA's uh, record uh, in a paper in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2015, and we found virtually identical numbers to the numbers that Davis has found from the EMA. And that's largely because the FDA and the EMA, for the most part, they go hand in hand with drug approvals. The same drugs are approved by both agencies based on the same trials and the same evidence. Uh, occasionally, the EMA has different standards than the FDA, um, but uh, that's the exception and not the rule. Mm. We think about the EMA and the FDA as being, you know, two big regulators, but there are other ones. Japan has its own regulator. New Zealand does. So. Is there anyone that's actually asking for, you know, quality of life, life expectancy data when when they think about approval? I would say that largely the two biggest players in this sphere are the EMA and the US FDA. Um, many of the other regulatory agencies take their marching orders from these agencies. Um, it's it would be very unusual for one of these other regulators to demand evidence that is uh, of a higher quality than re- demanded by the FDA and the EMA. And for that reason, and, and I guess the other thing to point out is the market share of these drugs. Um, although we would wish cancer drugs would have an impact globally, the reality is in many parts of this world, because of the high price of these drugs, they're relatively inaccessible. And the U.S. marketplace and the European marketplace remain a large proportion of 
the market share globally for the sales of these drugs. So really the drug companies and the regulators in the U.S. and the uh, Europe really do set the trend for the rest of the world. So um, what drug companies are providing to, to the FDA and EMA um, are generally two things. So it's response rate and progression-free survival. What are those and, and, and how do they sort of relate to, to things like quality of life and, and life expectancy ultimately? Oh, so that, that's an excellent question. So um, you're, you're absolutely right. There are two sort of categories of measures that the, the FDA and the EMA use to approve drugs, and those are measures of tumor shrinkage, of which the most popular is response rate, and it's used for many solid cancers. And they're also something what I call a time-to-event composite endpoint, a different type of surrogate endpoint, but it's a, it's a time-to-event endpoint, and that is where you find progression-free survival or things like time to progression or relapse-free survival. So let me take you through these just, uh, just really quickly. So response rate is really asking, if I take a drug and I give it to 100 people, how many of them have a response? And what's a response? A response is either a complete response, meaning that all of the visible cancer on a CAT scan has shrunk away and the lymph nodes had returned to normal size, or more often it's a partial response, meaning that the CAT scan images show a reduction in tumor size of approximately 30%. So the reason I say that is we have to acknowledge at the outset that 30% is a very arbitrary cutoff. It was established for a a lot of arbitrary and historical reasons that have nothing to do with how patients feel. You can have a patient that feels better with a 29% reduction in their tumor size. You can have a patient who feels awful despite a 45% reduction in their tumor size. So it doesn't have an inherent meaning to patients. It's something visible on scans. The other thing I'd say about it is they've been a number of high-quality studies where they've taken the same scans to different radiologists or oncologists, and it, would, it, it may surprise you to know that different people will actually score the exact same scans differently, and someone will call it a response, and someone else will say it's not a response. So this is, this is not like measuring your height. This is like measuring something that is, has a very ill-defined and fuzzy border. So it's really, and that's important to know. The more you look at responses on CAT scan, the less and less confidence I think you have uh, that they're really measuring something inherently meaningful. Now, what about progression-free survival? Uh, That's a composite endpoint, just like cardiology trials have composite endpoints of revascularization or heart attack. And just like the cardiology trials, some of the things that go into a composite endpoint are more important than others. With progression-free survival, the composite endpoint includes death, which is tremendously important and what we don't want to have happen. It also includes progression, which is either new lesions that appear on a CAT scan that weren't there before, or the growth of lesions from 20% bigger than their smallest size. Those are the two criteria of progression. And here again, at once, we see how arbitrary it is. Why 20%? Why not 25% or 40% or 50%? And I can tell you, patients don't feel when they pass that arbitrary 20%. Some people feel terrible at 15%. Other people feel just fine at 27%. You know, it doesn't really um, delineate a patient-centered outcome. So those are response rate in PFS. There's modifications depending on if it's a blood-based cancer versus a solid tumor. But largely, those are the two most common endpoints used for regulatory approval, which is largely in the metastatic setting and largely for solid tumors. And they're arbitrary. And the next part of your question was, how well do they correlate with survival? 
So um, we've looked at this question a, a couple of times. Um, I think the first time was in also in 2015 um, in JAMA uh, Internal Medicine. We looked at the strength of correlation between every time response rate has been tested against survival or progression-free survival has been tested against survival in every tumor type. And what we found was, again, sobering, that the vast majority of the time, response rate and PFS are very poor predictors of subsequent overall survival. Um, and, you know, interested people can take a look at the, this paper, but it was really an umbrella analysis of meta-analytic estimates. Um, and it, it really gives us more caution. Um, for those of us who kind of practice based on these outcomes, it's, it's probably not telling us something we don't already know. But for people who don't think about cancer drugs day in and day out, I think it's very surprising to know you can shrink tumors and not make people better off. Mm. So, I mean, there's there's a lot in there that's interesting. I didn't realize that um, not only were, were these um, surrogate endpoints, but that there was such fuzziness around and, and variability in the measurement of it, which, which again, obviously um, changes changes the outcome. So, um, I mean, you've, you, you kind of mentioned it there, but do you, as a, a um, an oncologist, do you ever think about things like um, response rate, rate and and progression free survival in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I think we we do think about them, uh, and I mean, part of the reason we think about them is we're forced to think about them. We don't have high quality evidence measuring better outcomes. If I had that better evidence, I would love to rather use that evidence. But because I'm relegated to using response rate and PFS. My life has become obsessed with response rate in PFS. I, in my practice, like most oncologists, you know, we think about cross-trial comparisons. We're thinking about two different drugs in a setting, and we're thinking, well, one has a better response rate. But again, you know, it's a cross-trial comparison, so we're taking it with a grain of salt. We're thinking about many drugs that do improve PFS and how we can, we can use those drugs to improve patient outcomes. But again, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And so what does that lead to? The reality is for me, as someone who thinks a lot about this, it leads to long conversations with people to try to explain what we know, what we don't know, what we assume, what's merely uncertain, um, to try to guide patients down a path that is something we all think is reasonable, doctor and patient alike. Um, all of this talk about progression-free survival and response rate and post-marketing commitments, we're still in a bit of a fantasy land. We're talking about the patients on these studies, and those patients are not like average Europeans or average Americans. They are very select patients. They are often younger than the average age. They have fewer comorbidities. They don't have other organ dysfunction or other medical problems. They are the best of the best patients. And with cancer drugs, you're talking about drugs that have real risks and toxicity and often marginal benefits. And when you start extrapolating the results from these very carefully selected idealized efficacy trials to the real world, we have some emerging data suggesting that the benefits may be smaller than anticipated and the harms may be greater. So topping off all this problem is the problem of unrepresentative clinical trials and whether or not these conclusions really bear out in the real world. And I'm afraid that the real world outcomes will, are probably more sobering than these trials which themselves are sobering enough. Um, how did we get to a point, given that you know oncologists don't want to to just use this data, um, given that patients you know care about quality of life, they care about life expectancy. Um, how did we get to a point where where this is all that regulators need to to be able to to approve a, a, a drug onto market, and then even down the line, six years later, 
we don't provide that evidence to clinicians um, to be able to to help them make, you know, to help patients make good choices uh, about what they want for their care. Yeah, I think there've been there there are a few moving parts here. So one of the parts is it wasn't that long ago, but when the majority of anti-cancer drugs were developed largely through federal investment and federal clinical trials, uh, it was only into the 1990s and into the early 2000s that we saw the rise of industry sponsorship. Uh, industry-sponsored cancer trials now are the vast majority of cancer trials, whereas once upon a time there were almost no industry-sponsored trials. Uh, Christopher Booth and colleagues from Kingston, Ontario, have shown that. Alongside the rise of industry sponsorship, we've seen some changes in cancer clinical trials. One, overall survival, which was once the endpoint, uh, the most common endpoint of cancer clinical trials, randomized phase three trials, has fallen out of favor, declining from something like 50% of the endpoint to about a third of the endpoint. Um, uh, response rate has remained fairly constant in large phase three clinical trials of about 10% or so. Use response rate as the endpoint. Really, it, overall survival has declined and progression-free survival has taken over. That's risen as the endpoint of clinical trials. The other thing Booth and colleagues know is that the sample size of clinical trials has gotten bigger with the industry's involvement. So what does that all mean? Put together, it means we are using more surrogate endpoints um, and we're using bigger trials, which are actually in cancer medicine can be problematic because they're powering studies to find statistically significant, but perhaps clinically meaningless improvements in survival or progression-free survival, things that are on the order of a month or two months, where we really have to ask ourselves, is that a patient benefit? Um, you know, even if you gave the surrogate some credit, is that a patient benefit when it's such a small period of time? Um, your next question is the regulator side. The regulators, I think, have shifted their thinking. Um, I, I guess I am, I'm sympathetic to regulators, and I actually do personally believe that there are some cancer drugs that we should make available based on response rate and PFS, and we should have these post-marketing commitments on the back end because there are some settings in cancer that are very dire and there are no good options. But what we've seen is in a, that I think we're, being, we're too lax in how we do this. We're approving the majority of cancer drugs based on surrogates, um, even in settings where there are many, many other alternatives. And we're not doing due diligence on the back end. Six years on the market, we're not following up these drugs to make sure they show survival benefit or quality of life benefit. I think you cannot have it both ways. You, it's okay to be lax on the front end, but you have to have good post-marketing. Or it's okay to have lax post-marketing, but you have to be strong on the front end. You just can't have be lax on both ends. Um, but that's what we see. So I guess in terms of why the regulators have moved in this direction, I think the reality is the regulators are under tremendous pressure um, to make drugs available to patients. Uh, they're under that pressure from the industry, from many patient advocacy groups, many of whom are actually indirectly funded through the, by the industry, um, and they're under sort of public pressure that they're thought of as the bad guy and the reason why we're not getting more effective drugs. But I really don't think the regulator is the bad guy here. The reason we're not getting a lot of better drugs in cancer is probably because biology is hard, and lowering the bar for drug approval doesn't get you better drugs. It actually gets you a lot more marginal drugs. Um, but I think we've seen the, in, the regulators um, become more accepting of PFS and response rate over time um, and uh, have failed to really uphold post-marketing commitments. Mm. Now, it's been a, about a week since we published that trial um, and there have been responses to your article online and I think I could sum them up by saying, yeah, I agree with this, but you know what? We've known this for a while. This is just another you know, 
brick of evidence in this wall of, of problems with regulation of drugs, and not just cancer drugs, but all drugs. Um, time now is to actually do something about it. Uh, do you feel similarly to, to those responders? Yes. I, I mean, I, I also want to give Davis and colleagues credits. They're doing things that haven't been done before. I mean, they're looking at survival and quality of life before and after drug approval in a, in a way that prior studies, including studies that I've been a part of, have not looked at it as rigorously. The other thing they're doing that's very nice is for the, for the drugs that are approved, they're asking how many meet benchmarks of clinically meaningful benefits. And they're doing this all in one really elegant paper. So I really do think this is a tremendous paper. It's putting everything uh, out there for discussion in a way that hadn't been done before. Um, but that said, I think the totality of the evidence is clear. This is a problem. Um, I think I think there's another part of the problem here that we didn't touch upon, which is the the popular narrative about cancer drugs. If you read the newspapers or magazines or watch the nightly news or hear about some cancer drug that's in a drug advisory meeting, you will hear patients um, calling for this drug to be approved, saying, "Who are you to say that you know I cannot try this drug? I'm the one who has this condition. It's up to me to decide to try. Who is some you know bureaucratic regulator to say it's not worth it? You know, it's not. It's not. The data is not good enough. It's up to me." And I think that's a very compelling narrative, and that's part of the reason why um, it's been difficult to make progress on this issue. But I want to suggest that. I feel like this is a very skewed narrative, and the patients who go to these meetings who, as we've done in a study a couple years ago, um, a, a good chunk of them are actually uh, funded by the industry to actually attend those meetings, um, I think it's not a representative cross-section of all patients out there. And I think about my practice. I practice in Oregon, uh, just one of the states in the United States on the West Coast. I think about patients who come to my clinic, and these aren't the kind of patients that go to advisory meetings and go to the microphone. These are the patients who are out there in the real world. And the things they tell me are, when you offer a drug that all you know is it has a response rate, or all you know is it has a two-month PFS, they say, well, well, what about, is it gonna make me feel better, doctor? Am I gonna live longer? And when I tell them, you know, we we just don't have the data that answers that question, uh, they look at me like I'm a crazy person. They say, you know, I need that data to make a decision that's right for me. How can we not have that data? So I feel like the popular narrative around these drugs and what patients want is incredibly skewed by the types of patients and the funding sources for those who go to these meetings. But that said, putting it all together, I think it is clear that even if you were willing to accept a system where we do allow some drugs with some uncertainty on the market, and we do, our current system tolerates lots of uncertainty, um, you have to have robust post-marketing commitments. So the easiest thing that can be done is post-marketing trials need to have clear, uh, complete by d dates. And if the dates are not met, uh, the drug companies need to be fined or the drugs need to be pull pulled from market. Um, we cannot tolerate drugs being on the market for over a decade without knowing the answers to these questions. Um, I think the other thing that agencies like the FDA and EMA have to ask themselves is, um, is this really the setting where you need to use a surrogate endpoint? Um, in settings where there are already 10 or 15 drugs that patients can choose from, uh, that's not to me the setting where you want to lower the bar to let the 16th or 17th drug on the market. Um, and yet that's what we've seen in a couple of times in, in cancer drugs. I think um, the other thing we have to do is lower the price of these medications. The price is tied to the evidence in this kind of bizarre way because we have a situation where cancer drugs are routinely priced in excess of 100 grand per year of treatment, $100,000, but 
which has allowed companies to have billion-dollar or blockbuster drugs from even tumor types with very small market share of 1,000 people. And what this really does is it creates tremendous incentive to run overpowered trials to find statistically significant and clinically meaningless distinctions to chase every surrogate endpoint because the difference between approval and not is usually several billion dollars. Um, so I think the system is, is broken in several ways that, that all really do require tackling. Um, and I think this paper is a very elegant uh, paper that puts a lot of this work together, goes beyond some of this work, um, and is really a tipping point in, in the time for action. Um, I mean, you, you hinted at that. Some of these markets are enormous billion-dollar markets. Um, but it is, you know, clinicians who are actually uh, prescribing these drugs, who are, who are buying them on behalf of, of the patients, as it were. Um, you know, is it time for clinicians to say, well, we're not going to prescribe things unless we have good data about, you know, the, the kind of endpoints that, that do work to um, for patients? I think that that's absolutely the case. Um, but but there's, a, there's a deep challenge here. Um, when I talk about cancer drugs to my friends who are general internists or cardiologists or nephrologists, and you talk about some of these marginal benefits, I think there's immediate acceptance that this is not good enough for our patients. When I talk about it with experts in cancer, there's often extreme reluctance to get rid of these drugs. There's, there's, they're, they buy into the fact that a two-month PFS benefit is somehow uh, miraculous or, or worth these prices. And this disconnect is very hard to explain. Um, I think one of the reasons this disconnect exists is because of uh, the, the sheer role of financial conflict of interest in oncology. Um, we've had some large-scale studies that have come out in the United States based on the Affordable Care Act showing that just over half of oncologists in America have a finan financial tie to a drug uh, or device maker. Um, when it comes to the experts who actually write the guidelines, these are the people who all of us are, are learning our craft from. Um, a nice paper by Aaron Mitchell and colleagues in JAMA Oncology shows that 85% of them have a financial tie to a drug maker. Um, we have a situation where um, the people who are in the best role to say these benefits are not good enough for our patients, we shouldn't use some of these drugs, they are in a conflicted position and often unwilling to oppose those drugs. And I think so this is a deeper problem that, you know, um, that, that, that I think the, the solution to which is, is something that is not, is not readily accepted and it will be painful to many people. And that solution is actually getting rid of the conflict, I think. That's the, that's the solution, actually. You've been listening to Vinay Prasad talk about the evidence for cancer therapies. The editorial Vinay wrote and the research that we discussed are all available on bmj.com now. As always, subscribe. We're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find much of our back catalogue there, including the interview with Hussein Neji from LSE that I talked about at the beginning. That's all for this episode. We'll be back soon asking whether it's time to stop looking at gender differences in medical practice and instead focus on behaviour. Thanks for listening.